Greetings, rulers. For our 15th night rule, I was very happy to get a chance to speak in depth with Professor Marianne Cummings. She's a physicist and a scientist and a brilliant political commentator as well. And I really enjoyed talking to her for the hour. I'm sure you will too. For our intro song today, we will be listening to Sotatse Rion's Miss Parallel World. And for our outro today, we will be listening to a song called Dial M, and that's from Akira Terao. So without any further ado, welcome to Night Roll. up because we're kind of joking after the Feldman podcast last night that, you know, us peasants may be at each other's throat, you know, forever, but isn't it nice to know that the ruling class just gets along? <laughs> pretty chummy. There's no question. Pretty, There's uh, It's pretty chummy. It is pretty chummy. I, I'm surprised. Um, I, is this a new thing that you have launched? Because I haven't heard of it before, but I noticed like Many of my buddies that I've met through the uh, through the, the David Feldman show are mm. you've you've interviewed. They're talking. Are, are they talking about it at the water coolers? Are you hearing you hearing my name bandied about in rooms um, with no, hushed hush whispers? We weren't. No, that, uh, <laughs> I was hoping. I was hoping. That that are you? Have, have you been on David Feldman's uh, podcast or office hours? I've gone to office hours. I've never been on the podcast. I've, I've okay. sat with my hand raised for hours at a time lately, but I also, I'm really impatient. So I'll like join the Zoom call and oh, then drop out after 20 minutes. And um, right. but, um, yeah, I mean, definitely, let's see, who have we had on that's been on there? Uh, ben Burgess. Oh, but you've been, Adnan. you had Adnan. Oh my God, what a what a civilizing force that guy is. Oh, Adnan's amazing. Yeah, he's so good. He's so good. I just love listening to him. Yeah. Um, no, I've been lucky, to, lucky enough to have a, a lot of really good guests, yourself included. So I should introduce you here, Marianne. So I'm speaking today with uh, Professor Marianne Cummings. She's a physics professor at the University of Northern, or sorry, Northern Illinois University. Hey, if I'm not mistaken. I've been an adjunct, I've been all kinds of flavors of a professor at uh, Northern Illinois University, except for tenured. <laughs> but I, I am now full time, I'm a, an adjunct right now, and I'm full time working for a private company uh, called Muons Inc., but that was formed by one of the original uh, accelerator scientists over at Fermilab. Mm. So 
I've been, I've never been employed by Fermilab, but I've had a Fermilab ID since I was 19. And I've always had an office and email at Fermilab. So I've been what they call a user been part of the Fermilab user community. Mm. A lot of uh, a lot of privatization, a lot of a lot of steps involved in, in you know, I'll right. tell you, it's it's a weird thing when I did join this company, because when I first heard of Raul making this company, I said, isn't that weird? Why don't they just give universities and and national labs the money directly? Because businesses have never had um, never had a problem stealing our, our ideas and running with them. <laughs> Let's put it this way. But uh, it's been an interesting thing because I've had to look at commercialization and I've also, which I found valuable, I've been dealing with people in the, in the world of industry and the world of regulation and people that's, that are outside the silos of academia. And uh, I think people, it used to be much more, um, there used to be much more integration between the technical companies, for instance, in the universities and uh, the technical companies now are run by people out of business school. I mean, Carly Fiorina was uh, mm. was out marketing, and she managed. Might be less than ideal. Yeah, might be less than ideal. Yeah. So that's the. But anyway, it's 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 a small company, but we have a very interesting. It's a very interesting business model. We're actually helping a lot of our national labs um, do projects. And we're a little more like a pirate ship that, of course, you know, they're big entities and they, it, they it's not as loose and as easy as it was 50 years ago when you were in a national lab. Mm. Uh, you know, it's like everything else. It's money. It's the, the projects are bigger. The power is more concentrated. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it, it's just a different world. I mean, I don't think it's as bad. It's even worse in, in biology where it's like almost all partnerships with private companies, but uh, mm. you know. Well, let me, let me kick off there actually, because that is interesting. I mean, first and foremost, you're a scientist or maybe not first and foremost, but among your many hats you wear, science mm -hmm. is one of them. Um, and, you know, I think um, we kind of live in, a, in an era where people just kind of assume uh, that the state of scientific development and its pace is, is high and we're so technologically advanced, look at our phones, et cetera, et cetera. But I've heard other people stipulate that while we may, you know, be able to look at things like smartphones and say we're, we're super technologically advanced in terms of actual blood and guts, uh, technological innovation, we're not exactly living in some kind of golden age. Um, and I'm curious for your thoughts on like, I mean, say just in America or or that milieu, like how would you how would you kind of rate the state of, of kind of scientific development and innovation right now? Well, you know, as as usual, um, now to sound like our friend Henry Hakamaki is is it's complicated. Um, there is a lot of stuff going on. Um, there's a lot of innovation that's always going on, but uh, America is definitely losing leadership. I mean, one of the things I've been doing, because I started out as a particle physicist, and now we've had to work with the actually machinery, and I go to accelerator physics conferences, and the accelerators are both uh, research and industry, and it's just amazing how much money third world countries are putting into R&D. I mean, they, they see it as a way uh, to, to go forward, and uh, I just remember back in 2000, after 2001, we were at our high energy physics meeting, a summer meeting over in, in 
it was it was in um, Breckenridge, I believe, or Snowmass, one of those two. And we had somebody from the Bush administration, from the newly installed Bush administration, in there, and it was literally a, like a 21-year-old guy that was representing the rep, was representing the Bush administration to the scientific labs. Oh, is that is that a problem? A 21-year-old political appointee? I mean, they're yeah, also appointing the same types of. And he's yeah, this, like, but you know, yeah. it was amazing because he's sitting there like, well, why do we need to, do we need any more science? I mean, this and that, I mean, it was just like, everybody's standing <laughs> aghast. The next piece, I mean, God. it was, um, I, you oh, couldn't write me, this. Man. This was like uh, something out of the onion at the time. Everybody's looking at each other going, hold, except, and they were kind of booing, except my advisor, old advisor was going, hey, listen to him, listen to him. And he's going, guys, you need to listen to him because this is the administration and you'd better understand. So the next guy that comes up is the director of CERN, which is the big European in, in, uh, particle accelerator, which superseded Fermilab as the world's biggest particle accelerator. Mm. And he was like, he was going to give a speech and he says, I'm sorry. And I know I'm a guest here, but I remember growing up in post-war Europe when people, when getting water and food was an issue, yet people got together and decided that you know the only way to have a future is to invest in science and that was the genesis of the uh of the big what they called the the center of energy um nuclear i, I don't i don't know what the french term is for crn but that was the cern laboratory so they knew even back then when they were struggling to survive that it was important in order to have a future to look towards science and and it's not just science as a goal, but science as, you know, an expression of who we are and who we are as human beings at our best is to explore and create. Yeah, and people need material things in order to um, really like engage with those pursuits. Um, and I think, I mean, you look at the one era again and looking at say like the Eastern and Western blocks during the Cold War, you know, um, I think you can compare the culture of science between the Soviet Union and America and America's decades behind in terms of gender equality in the sciences, right? Like, like even today at this point, you ask someone in Russia, like if a young woman in Russia wants to become a scientist, no one looks at her twice. They're like, okay, yeah, cool. Of course, go for I, it. I was Whereas, uh, working. Like, that, yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, when you mentioned that, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I dropped out of uh, undergraduate a lot uh, to and, and took jobs to work my way through. This is early 80s, University of Michigan. It could not be done now. But one of the jobs I took was over at Brookhaven National Laboratory. I was working there half a year and the, the gals in the dorm, they had a woman's dorm there, was uh, first nuclear physicist I ever met and they were from Iran. They're Iranian. And of course, this was after the Iranian revolution, so it was very interesting to talk to them. But, you know, they, even they noticed that, you know, like 25% of the nuclear physicists in Iran are women. And that number, the number for women in physics in general and basic research physics has been stubbornly at about 10% for about 100 years. Yeah. It, it's an amazingly stable number. And it doesn't get beyond that much. 
And like, what a disastrous, <laughs> what a disastrous state of affairs. In I mean, in terms well, of just, you know, getting brains and minds in laboratories in front of pipettes, doing experiments, writing papers, you know, you're, you're under utilizing such a huge component of your potential scientific base, right? And, you know, this is where, and I, as I said, I've gone to these international, you know, particle accelerator conferences for years. And there's every year I get invited to the women in, in science and industry section, and they usually have the best hors d'oeuvres and the best wine. So I go, but I, you know, and every year I tell, you know, they always are scratching their heads, wondering the same thing. Why aren't there more women in physics? And I, and I try to tell them the same thing because you're asking people to, you know, spend n number of years. Typically it's six or seven years after undergraduate getting a PhD in physics and experimental physics. Some is even more than any number of years as a postdoc before maybe you have a one in 10 chance to get that, to get that job, you know, in academia or in the national labs. In the meantime, your shelf life, as far as industry is concerned, is really, the clock is really ticking on that because you know, again, it's because the even technical companies are no longer run by scientists and engineers. The last holdout was loosened. And we had somebody when the, uh, at Fermilab, after the big collider in Texas was canceled, you know, there pretty much went a lot of our careers, a lot of our futures. And they said, look, if you want a job at Lucent, don't go through HR. You bring your resume to me and I'll bring it through to the right people. And I'm going, how is Lucent? hiring the right people when you have to work around your human resources. So I'm saying, look guys, you'll get weirdos like myself who never wanted to get married or have kids. But if you're having somebody who wants to have a kid, you know, wants to raise a family and have some stability, you're not gonna get many women. That's the difference between the United States and say Italy. And it's not like Italy culturally is any more enlightened about women than this place is, but this is, they have, when you, when you graduate, your, your degree is respected and you do have a job. You might not get the most prestigious jobs, but you have a job, you have a life. And the, even back in the nineties, late nineties, people are my colleagues. When I was working on one of the big experiments at Fermilab kept telling us, how do you live like this? How do you live in such, you know, with just economic uncertainty? And, you know, and they don't worry about jobs. They don't worry about, I mean, they worry about careers like everybody else is getting the right one, but healthcare, like when Europeans come here and they even back then when they saw the state of our healthcare system that just, they were stunned. So this is where, you know, the uh, social justice, you know, what people would like to see diversity is inextricably bound with economics. Well, this is my question. I mean, if, if yes. <clears throat> could we not be making an argument to a pretty huge swath of the political world out there saying like, look, in terms of um, our economy, in terms of innovation, in terms of even things like national security, if we're not, you know, throwing 50K at whatever person wants to be a scientist and just needs that little bit of a boost to be able to fucking do it, to be able to, you know, be a scientist and still feed themselves, you know, like the, the benefits could potentially be exponential, but I mean, regardless on an individual level, but on a mass scale, the, 
like we that's an argument we should probably be making to everyone at large right well yeah and it's and it's basically when you are trying to reduce things down to you know quarterly profit reports you know that's an extreme example but you know what we do, the, the kind of innovations that came out of high energy, high energy physics, and when I, when I'm teaching first year physics, first year astronomy classes at Northern Illinois, I have no idea when I'm going to be teaching there again. They're having a lot of problems with COVID, uh, but you know, the um, people come up to me and said, "Well, what is this good for?" You know, what is all this basic? And I said, "Well, you know, the honest answer is, I have no flipping idea what this is going to be good for." But if you look at CAT scanners, MRI, lasers, you know, the whole spectrum of instrumentation, that's all physics, 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 particularly particle physics, nuclear physics, you know, uh, optics, um, you know, proton therapy is accelerator particle physics, uh, and even energy like we might get to which is uh, our company is using is, is designing a, a nuclear reactor that uses particle physics technology to burn nuclear waste and run subcritically so but we can talk about that but what i'm saying is that none of that came out of industry i, I mean it maybe bell labs way back in the day when it was a government regulated monopoly could afford a $2 billion a year research budget at Murray Hill, which is where the Bell Labs was situated. And, uh, and a lot of really fantastic things came out of them. But these, these days, I mean, it's, I, I, I really don't know unless there's kind of a revival of, and it may come through climate action that people realize that we haven't been able to solve this problem actually haven't been able to solve any problem of you know of national import through the marketplace neither healthcare, education mm. uh, uh a pandemic public public health pandemic you know we have we have had no public health infrastructure at all and uh you know you had people like michael Osterholm. Uh, Osterholm over at uh sidrap up at university of minnesota has been both Republican and Democratic administrations pushing for years that just this kind, just what we are experiencing now is going to happen. Uh, as a matter of fact, he wrote a book about it. I read his damn, read his damn book uh, yeah. called Deadliest Enemy because, you know, he started, they were funding um, all kinds of universities. The money was, was, was being spread far and wide for uh, bioterror studies after 911. So every single university was getting after that money. He was charged with, you know, seeing how they could weaponize these diseases and spread this kind of virus. And it occurred to him, I, I don't know if it was, he was at a meeting or if he was following the SARS pandemic, but he goes to China and he takes one look at one of these enormous wet markets, they call, because, you know, towns in the interior of China are like 15 million people. And the, you know, the, the confluence of all this wildlife and domestic, uh, do, domestic stock and fowl, he says, you couldn't run this experiment on ethical grounds here. So he came back and said, look, forget about other company, uh, countries weaponizing this. I mean, nature is already weaponizing this. And, and this is what's coming. We dodged the bullet. 
with SARS-1. So anyway, my, yeah. my whole point is that, you know, we haven't been able as a collection of self-interested individuals and companies to be able to collectively solve these problems. Mm. And the scientists uh, look on like Cassandra, seeing, seeing the dangers yeah, of the future, but are ignored. Yeah. You have to edit yourself in these, I mean, you know, it's an extreme in like when you have the, the people that were behind the plant-based movement, um, I, I like this one guy, uh, John McDougall. I think he's a really solid guy, but he's very, he, he's very, very provocative in a way that um, people like Caldwell Estelson and um, who is it, Colin Campbell, the guy who wrote the China study, are very reserved and polite. But you know, uh, at age seventy, he decided, and he told his son, who was an MD, he said, "If you want a, a job, if you want a career, you you can't be telling the truth about what most of your colleagues are doing because it, you know, it, it that's just not the culture." At age seventy, he said that it was great. He started, you know, making a point of getting himself kicked off of every major. <laughs> uh, every major uh, professional group that he was in at, at the because he's a, a star speaker at most of their conferences and he was calling them out and he was calling them by name you are lying and you are lying and you know what the science wow. about you know nutrition and it, it was pretty astounding uh, I was thinking about that because about three years ago I was at one of these uh, national particle accelerator conferences and there's always a big um section on medical, on, on accelerators for medical physics. And I have worked a little bit with some colleagues of mine at, at Fermilab who are developing proton therapy machines. And um, a guy was um, giving- Sorry, pro pro proton therapy for what, what application? Yeah, for, for, uh, for, um, for cancer therapy. Okay. And briefly, what it is is that if you ever took a physics class, you have something called and a, a, a brag scattering, but what is what really it is, it's a brag peaking rather. What it is is that a proton will go through your body and do relatively little damage until it gets, you know, slowed down about the energy where it can interact uh, with the nucleus and, and the atoms. And so you can tune that. You can tune a beam to like, you know, uh, at a certain a certain energy so that it goes through a certain amount of tissue with minimal damage and then deposits most of its damage and energy at the site of the tumor. And it's more effective than say like traditional radiation therapy. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, that sounds like that, that's a lot more uh, targeted. Yes, it's, it's more targeted. Now there is they, what they've called modulated radiation therapy where they, you know, you, you kind of, uh, they send the, the beam uh, the traditional radiation, gamma radiation, but they have beamlets that come at you from all different angles and they only converge at the point of your tumor. So that's, you know, that gets around that a little bit. So the big thing was, um, you know, prostate uh, cancer, big cancer thing they thought that was particularly good for. So he shows a slide and it shows, uh, you know, modulated radiation, proton and no therapy. And I, and he doesn't even comment on the no therapy. The no therapy group in the study had better outcomes for men over a certain age. I think it was 67. And I, I'm, nobody's commenting on this. And then I'm like, at the end, I raised my hand. I'm going, you know, uh, slide 10. 
isn't that the most important slide of your talk? I mean, <laughs> it, it's like if, if in fact, what they call watchful waiting and diet and exercise and, you know, building up your immune system and just not treating a very slow growing tumor might actually get better outcomes. Oh, that was considered implied. Well, you know, you could have to consider, you know, all the possible universe. I said, yeah, but this study, this study, yes, all the possible universes we haven't explored, I get this, but, you know, it was amazing. And later on, a friend of mine who was a, a first-rate guy, he's, Fermilab hired him and then fired him very unceremoniously. Uh, they hired him for their neutron therapy. We had neutron therapy going over at Fermilab, which is another one of these uh, different kind of proton therapies. And uh, they hired this guy who was head of the radio oncology lab at Virginia Tech and was a doctor and a real physicist. It was rare. I mean, most of the medical doctors, you know, their idea of science and physicists' idea of science, a little different. So he was just this rare person who straddled both worlds. But he even said to me, he goes, yeah, um, you know, uh, scientific rigor has a little bit of a different meaning in my field than it does in yours. And it's really considered impolite, you know, what you did by just calling somebody out and saying, hey, this is bullshit. <laughs> it's like, businesses do that to each other all the time, you know, maybe politely, maybe not so politely, but the, the idea that you're in a, culture where you're not supposed to directly attack you know your colleagues or at least their work is you know it's a little yeah it's a little different from particle physics mm. well i mean i find it, it's a really interesting question to me because um scientific orthodoxies always fascinate me especially ones that have been recently overturned um mm -hmm. whether it's in the social sciences or the hard sciences um <clears throat> and it's interesting because i feel like the science when properly practiced with using tools such as peer review and whatnot, and um, what do you call it, when you can replicate results. Uh, yeah, reproducibility. I mean, reproducibility, that's, that's, it's, it's very, very key. And it, it has yeah. this kind of element almost, I think feel like when science is done well, it has this inherent uh, character of, that, that, that uh, is anathema to orthodoxy and can challenge it. But at the same time, you do see or that scientific orthodoxies for one reason or another can get entrenched. And I wonder if given that the funding uh, from more stable sources really may not be there in a lot of cases, if, if a kind of economic orthodoxy or an economically tinged orthodoxy is, is maybe the, the, the most dangerous orthodoxy when it comes to the practice of science today. Well, you know, I think, you know, for particle physics, of course, what we do is pretty abstract. And of course, what I was also involved in is particle astrophysics, which is really abstract. But, um, but I'm thinking of a, a series of discussions I had with my physics colleagues about gen genetically modified foods. Okay. So, you know, they, they, they do take the stance that well, you know, the anti-GMO crowd isn't scientifically educated and, you know, there's no, there, 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 there's just nothing that proves that any of this food is harmful. And I, I, I kind of look into it. I said, well, you know, first of all, just on general principles, should, be, should we be fucking with our food, <laughs> you know, so cavalierly? And you go into it and it's like, I, I, get, I get lectured at. I got lectured at by one, one gal who was telling me, well, you don't understand. It's just really, it's, it's really pinpointed to like one enzyme. 
And I'm going, well, well wait a minute. Uh, isn't the one gene, one protein or one enzyme model like at least, least 50 years out of date at this point? <laughs> I mean, this is the problem when you go and read, particularly scientists in Europe who are having some grave concerns about, you know, these genetically modified organisms. They said, yeah, you can, you can genetically modify something. And, so, and they all agree that potentially this has enormous, has possibility for enormous benefit, but you have to do it extremely carefully because you might modify one gene and it does have the expected act, uh, action on one protein. But what about the actions it has on everything else? And somebody says, but that's just, that's just genetic noise. And I'm going, what, what? What genetic noise? <laughs> Isn't like, our entire existence genetic noise in one way or another, it, you could argue? But you know, it's just really amazing because um, when, when I was trying to look, so I don't like to make arguments without you know, some verification. And in fact, yeah, that one of the big, one, one of the big uh, problems or one of the big concerns they have is that you might be inducing new allergies because you might be inducing these rogue proteins. It's very hard to find, it's hard to find, it's straightforward to find things that would cause known allergies. It's hard to find things that would cause new allergies. That takes a lot of careful study and time and money. And so I'm looking around and in fact, my colleagues were technically right. There was no scientific study showing any problems along those lines because no scientific studies have been done in this country along those lines. That's a good system. Yeah, I like that. And it's Great. just astounding that even during, it didn't matter, the, the, the Bush or Obama administrations, I mean, the USDA and the FDA are just lousy with you know, ConAgra, Monsanto, pharmaceutical company ex executives, you know, just the classic sort of revolving door type of, you know, the people whose, you know, agencies are supposed to be regulating these companies are actually expecting to like rotate back to these companies. Uh, and then of course their, their arguments are always, well, you need the expertise. I said, yeah, so let's, huh, let's investigate ourselves. And you know what? Yeah, we're good. <laughs> Amazing. But, you know, as it turns out, it's even now, it, it has turned out that, in fact, these, you know, what, what has happened when they genetically modify corn, you know, to be resistant to, to, to tolerate, uh, you know, the pesticides to the uh, glyphosate's Monsanto products. What is that, Roundup type of glyphosate? Mm. Oh, they find out, you know, Monsanto discovers evolution. Like, oh, like, you know, you just have weeds that are super weeds and everybody is telling, well, you, you describe them if there's monsters. No, I said, no, they're just the weeds that have immunity to your damn pest herbicides. Same thing with the cotton. That's turned out to be a colossal failure, like colossal failure. It's turned out not to have uh, worked as planned because again, the worms, it's root worms, I think, in, in what uh, the bane of cotton growers. And I was just reading an article a few years ago after doing all this, you know, uh, careful trial and error, error, and they're, you know, finding out, ooh, we get worms that don't respond to the, pes the, er the pesticides that are in our products. Mm. So sorry, this, this is due to a process called uh, evolution, I think he was yeah. the word he said. <laughs> I haven't heard this term before. Look. You could save yourself a lot. Of, just rotate the damn crops. 
<laughs> well, that, and I'm saying, yeah, we're having a lot of, uh, we're having a lot of conflated arguments because I said, mm -hmm. you know, you, yes, GMOs potentially are very useful, but that needs to be done in an atmosphere where the, uh, or in a context where people's motivations are concerned for the environment, scientific, you know, sci scientific robustness, and so on. Um, and now, I, I mean, I would try it since I'm a reasonable person, I try to find some place where it was. And in fact, there was this project that was done, I think, in Brazil with genetically modified mosquitoes. And that, you know, they were very open. This is going to be a 10-year program. They were going to study it. They were going to just release these mosquitoes in one area. And I pointed, I said, hey, look, these guys seem to be at least doing this responsibly. Well, it's turned out that, you know, they, uh, the mosquitoes, <laughs> the mosquitoes not only are not breeding mosquitoes that are sterile, they're breeding very fertile mosquitoes that have a resistance to the herbicide. I'm going, oh God, you know, the boy and girl scientists, you know, didn't quite, un didn't quite anticipate that coming out of their little experiment. Yeah. But again, it's, um, I, I think you, you take the science seriously. You don't necessarily take individual scientists seriously. That's like anything else. I mean, you, you take the policy seriously. You don't make heroes out of your politicians. It's, um, and I think we will probably be rediscovering this as we go along, as we really have to solve public health problems, when we really have to solve, we already have had to solve global warming like 12 years ago. And what a tragedy for the world that Obama wasn't the person we all kind of fantasized he was going to be when we elected him because that was the time, you know, when, when Wall Street has collapsed is the time you can actually do something that countervails their power. It's extremely hard to do when Wall Street is robust and then you even get upper class liberals looking at their 401ks thinking, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Maybe I don't want that political revolution of Bernie Sanders. Ooh, that might upset things too much, you know. It's I want us to get there, but, uh, but um, it's definitely, uh, definitely a lot of interesting questions there. Um, yeah. But while we're still on science, just maybe to put a, uh, to wrap it up, um, like, do you think, I mean, even just on this question of genetically uh, modified food and whatnot, like, do you think that scientists and especially scientists perhaps um, with a, with a incentive, with a financial incentive are, are as susceptible as anyone to kind of a sunk cost fallacy? And, and do you think we might be looking at a situation where people are saying, okay, well, we could have this, this Shangri, like there, there could be this uh, El Dorado type wheat we can genetically engineer, but, but it might turn out that all the money invested and all the time, you know, they might've just been better off well, shouting you know, into the wind and, and then talking to a horticulturalist. Yes, not only that, but the problem was never all, it was never just science or technology. Look, I'm just old enough to remember as a kid reading about the green revolution, which meant, you know, this new type of food, which was, by the way, heavily, you know, dependent on commercially produced pesticides and fertilizer, but we were gonna feed the world. And yeah, initially yields were very good in certain areas. And then uh, it eventually failed because A, it made relatively poor farmers dependent on you know, outside expensive uh, technology. And again, B, the, the problem was never 
for food growth was never just a scientific one. It was a distribution one. It was a political one. It was an exploitation one. I mean, it just, none of those problems got solved by technology. So yeah, I mean, you have to have, there's a lot of what you would call like uneven development where- but Again, when you, just, you say yeah. about the scientists, uh, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, the reason why we have peer review I mean, we have a method, we have a scientific method and peer review. And the reason why that is so important is precisely because scientists are as vulnerable to anybody else for material gain. And look, if you're looking, if you're working on a project for years or even decades, and you think you've, you've actually solved something or you've discovered something, oh hell, you cannot look at that dispassionately or very few people can, you know, if I, presented, hey, I discovered the Marianne particle at Fermilab. And, you know, there's, of course, would be a horde of people going, that bitch did no such thing. She's an idiot. And we're going to just, I mean, it's, it's, it's um, adversarial. And it's adversarial like any, you know, like governments are adversarial because people cannot, you can't trust yourself. You know, it's, it's the basis of, of uh, conflict of interest. You know, you can't trust yourself to judge yourself you rely on peers, uh, particularly adversarial ones, to try to find fault in your arguments or holes in your work. And that works extremely well when you're in a, when you're in a, a, a corporate setting. I mean, even people who think they are, you know, that they are doing everything logically are always editing themselves ultimately because they're getting a paycheck. You know, there, there's, their incentive isn't, they're, they're their allegiance isn't pri primarily or exclusively to science and truth and integrity. It's like, well, you know, you, you start justifying to yourselves. Yeah, I know it's, this might be cutting corners here, but you know, this is for better good overall, the work is very important what I do and eventually it will work out. And, you know, as I said, it, it, you could say the same thing for uh, politics or any other sphere of life. And um, for sure. You know, what can I say? Um, well, I think you actually, uh, you're pretty, you, know, you have an advantage of, of uh, kind of a lot of different experience. I mean, you've worked in, in academia, the, mm -hmm. although, you know, you didn't exactly stay in the ivory tower there. You've worked in industry and you've also worked in the public sphere. I believe you are the parks commissioner for mm -hmm. Aurora, Illinois. Yeah, one of them. There's, there's three, uh, it's a huge park district. And I just agreed and I didn't, and I didn't realize how huge until I agreed to run. It was after, it was in 2016, and I had been a delegate uh, for Bernie Sanders at the convention, and that was not a pleasant experience for Bernie Sanders delegates. And, but, you know, a month later, we have a big meeting online, and still lots of people showing up um, at the Roundhouse, over 100, and Bernie Sanders, as usual, is demanding more of his followers than any other politician. Like, okay, you guys all need to run. Um, and, and thousands of people did run. I mean, there are thousands of people who, 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 asked, who basically answered that call. And for a lot of these lower level positions, in, in my case, they had, just, um, they had just made commissioner uh, a, an elected position, but before it was trustee and it was a bunch of people appointed by the, the county boards. And unfortunately, you know, you get these people and they are basically selected to emphasize a few things. Um, fortunately, we had an executive director of the park district who knew that things 
were about to change dramatically for him because he's telling everybody, hey, he, he looked at my website and my fellow Bernie bro, Holly Schultz's website, and we had specific things we wanted because we looked into the park district and we're looking through the lens of a we, Green New Deal and through you know uh, social equity and the environment and things like that. And holy crap, that first meeting after I was elected, but before I was sworn in, I had the whole executive board. So what the board is, is that we're like a school board or water board. Um, our one employee is the executive director of the park district and we can fire him. But we help set, we don't run the park district, but we do set policy and we do pose questions and we, have, we can demand answers from them. So from everything like, um, uh, social equity getting my particular district is the second district which is old aurora which is you know the the poor place you know the place where most poor people live and uh it's been grossly underserved there's some also the home of the home of wayne's world if i'm not mistaken absolutely the home of wayne's world yeah. and i have Party no on. idea why they just why they didn't decide to film it here because <laughs> mm -hmm. the kind of characters we have around here would be fantastic i love that movie so much anyways yeah <laughs> but uh, anyway, what I'm saying is that uh, here was a very low level position and it was kind of low on hanging fruit, yet we prevailed upon the park district. And by the way, at this meeting, they had read through every line of everything I wrote on my website. I had never had an experience like that. It was kind of freaky, but they were taking me seriously in a way I've never been taken seriously, not even among my scientific colleagues. But again, hey, you know, we're the boss uh, of the executive director. And so, fine. He wanted to exempt the park district from minimum wage laws for you know the temporary seasonal workers because most park districts, you get hundreds of people hired during the summer, spring and early fall months. And we said, absolutely not. Yeah, why pay them anything at all? Let's just get a chain gang going, come on. Well, Jeez you know, it's, it's just like it's not, it's, not, it's not as though that's difficult labor either. What the fuck? Well, I told the park district director, I said, "Look, if you know, if you're upset because we're, you know, like you're suddenly a bunch of people are about to be getting a ten, uh, fifty percent pay raise, then give them fifty percent more responsibility." Because he did have some what I thought very good. He brought in some very good business ethics and business practices, and I said, "But you know, you are not a for-profit business." We are a public service entity and, you know, the public, certainly people, you know, nobody in my district, hardly anybody has gotten a raise in the last 10 years, yet our property taxes go up and there are two lines that, in our property taxes out of the 20 or 21 that go to the park district. So, um, so not only did we have them in, we did, they did not get an exemption from minimum wage, we've really upped the quality and the service of all the, of the park district. I said, look, your managers, this is not a job like people before where you can go in, work for 30, 35 years and then get a pension. I mean, you know, just being a placeholder, you really have to work, train people. It's oftentimes their first job, these, these temporary jobs. And suddenly the, the park district is becoming a major problem solving organization. I mean, we're taking the lead where, where other where other uh, local governments have failed, we helped the school system stay closed because it was our was the recreation department that came up with remote learning centers for children of parents who had to work and where they could be safely distanced yet keep up in their schoolwork and 
As a result, the school district has stayed closed and uh, the COVID of course is raging around here, but the city of Aurora, which is the densest area around here, it's the second largest city in, in, in Illinois, we have the poorest population, yet we're doing better than Kane County as a whole. And most of the area north of us is much more affluent than we are. Partly, I think, because we were able to keep the schools closed. Fantastic. Um, so anyway, what I'm saying is that you can have as much power as you want to have on these boards. I mean, people, it's, it's just astounding to me. And I'm talking all the way up to even, you know, our, the squad. It's astounding to me how people are reluctant to use the power they actually have. I mean, well, I mean, if, yeah. if, if we have anyone listening that would, you know, be considering um, getting involved in public life in that way, or maybe recruiting a friend or a family member, someone close to them to do the same. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it sounds like from what you're saying that, that um, of the many things in your life you've had to put work into um, and had to struggle through, whether it be learning science, teaching science, working in industry. Um, and certainly, you know, public life has those strained, I mean, you touched on that a little bit as well, the, the unique challenges of having your life put under a microscope and whatnot, but the, re the rewards of it was, it, was it more rewarding than those other pursuits, would you say? Well, I would say in some ways it was, yes. I mean, in some ways I'm, I am glad that I forced myself to learn science and become a scientist because it's, I've, I've just had run into an amazing number of people and have experiences there, but in my, in my political life, running for public office, it, I mean, people should do it. People certain, and do these local level job, uh, local level positions because A, a lot of people aren't running for them and particularly this go round, people weren't because people weren't going door to door. Uh, but, you know, uh, I won't abuse that, but uh, yeah, I will, when, when it's necessary, I will go to our mayor's office and demand to see him and not leave and cause a ruckus if there is a huge problem that needs answering. Um, I think that the people in the park district like the fact that I was advocating for the park district, but you know, I was advocating for what they were doing because I was advocating for my constituents. Um, but again, there, there was one project, I mean, this is my Amy Poehler moment, but we had this horrible, uh, we had this hospital that was, that was closed 20 years ago in my neighborhood and it stood empty. And if you want to see some American horror story quality videos, go to <laughs> YouTube, like Copley Hospital Aurora, and you'll see kids have been going there for years. I mean, braver than I would be as creepy inside those places, but we finally, pushed the city, we decided that we were just going to like get the apply for state grants to build a park, even though we didn't have, we didn't, we didn't have the possession of the property, um, which you have to have to get the money. And I said, but we were told that, uh, you know, the city was going to deal with the owners and get that possession. So we went ahead and then people were wringing their hands going, well, what happens if we don't have possession? And I said, yeah, we get $300,000 and if we don't have possession and how embarrassing will it be for the mayor? So maybe he might wanna get off their butts over there and make it happen. And sure enough, it did. I mean, everybody was so worried about, ooh, you know, it might be a problem for them. 
let it be a problem from that. You know what's a problem in my neighborhood is that my neighbors get to have this eyesore, you know, in front of their houses for 20 years. You know, it's it's amazing to me. And in in fact, uh, we did get that money, and uh, but they were going to postpone the putting of a park in there until later. And I just told them, look, absolutely not. You're not postponing it. I won't run. And they knew I mean it. I mean. I, I have been true to my word. And when I tell people I'm going to do something or I'm not going to do it, they believe me. And he just, you know, they, they rallied at the park district and they did big workarounds and it's the park isn't finished, but the jungle gyms and the swing sets and all the, the uh, elements of a splash pad, a splash pad <laughs> are in the neighborhood. And okay, so it's not going to be ready until May, but people see it. And I said, you know, Jim, like a lot of us generally, people in our neighborhood have been so used to it never happening for them. Never. I mean, I wasn't trying to like, you know, be a jerk and just, you know, uh, throw a little hissy fit, but more important than the fact that we did get this money at Park is going in. They needed to see it now because people lose faith in their government or that government never works for them. That's why, you know, in the extreme, you can have the kind of nonsense that we saw last week over at the at you know at the Capitol. But in general, people losing faith, you know, they just don't feel like they have you know, like their government is theirs or something. And it's like it's very important that you see that we can that a government can work and give something to people that was desperately needed. Um, and that park is going to be beautiful. And, well, I I mean, my, and I will have my Amy Poehler moment next spring, this coming spring, maybe. Well-deserved. I mean, like what, like what, when you look at something like that, like what better example could you have of like a benefit to the community? You know, like that's an appreciable visceral um, thing on, on, in terms of physical health, in terms of mental health, in terms of the, the public good overall of the community. I mean, do people need to, I mean, you, we, you, there was a term back in like the 1920s of sewer socialism, which I don't think people really understand because it sounds like an insult, but it really just meant that socialists were really engaged on a community level, really making sure things like sewers and, and water and, and the necessities of life were looked after. Um, yeah. and I think I think a lot of people prefer to, especially if you're, if you're just mostly doing your political engaging online and it's um, oh. you're, you're dealing with things only on a national or international stage, should people be re-embracing kind of the the honor of of building some public good in the community block by block and and using that as a as practice and a, a way to sharpen your skills and and so if you're working on grander things down the line you kind of have those skills at the ready well i think first of all it's the perfect antidote to the toxicity of like federal like uh, national politics you know, everybody is like hating on each other. But when I was going door to door in early 2017, I was talking to Republicans and Democrats. And I did not hide the fact I was a Bernie bro. No, you know, I would never do that. That was, except for one or two people out of the hundreds and hundreds I talked to, that was absolutely no problem. And you know, then you realize that, oh, the country isn't falling apart. You know, despite what we see on the TV, you know, it isn't falling apart. It's, it's right here. People are happy with that. Somebody was knocking on their door. Uh, we had on the Feldman show, a young man uh, who was like 1221 Chalkway Pickford, I believe is his name. And he was running for state rep in the very, very Southwest corner of Michigan near the Indiana border. 
and he was running in the St. Joseph uh, uh, Benton Harbor area, but he was running in the Republican area. People, and he was, you know, the, this tall, young, very black dude, I think his parents were immigrants from uh, Nigeria, but you know, overwhelmingly, these, these Republican neighbors were delighted that some, to see him, that somebody was talking to them about how to improve their community. And he did not win, but he overperformed the guy who ran for Congress and Joe Biden in that area, because it's a Republican area. And without a doubt, when he has more, when he, when he has more recognition, of course, he's also campaigning in a COVID era, era. And it's and that's it's been very, very difficult this past year for any progressives or insurgents that are, you know, relying on this door-to-door -door direct contact. Um, rather than institutional, but he's going to be back. And it shows that, you know, uh, look, there was a book that I, there's a, a reporter that I followed for years. His, Matt is, his name is Matt Taibbi. You're probably familiar with him. Fantastic. Fantastic journalist you know, and writer. Yeah. Hate Inc. Yeah. Hate Inc. And it's exactly what's going on. I mean, I, when we used to just think that was, you know, as Rachel Maddow said when she was saying, you know, your crazy uncle that watches Fox News, I have exactly one of those. But now it's like, you know, as I was saying, I think the worst aspect of Trump is, uh, is the effect he's having on Democrats. I mean, suddenly Democrats are turning ugly. Suddenly Democrats are calling for like, like you know, uh, persecution of whistleblowers and they are against Julian Assange and therefore therefore mon monopolistic companies to like you know censor anybody they don't like and it's like guys get a you know uh, careful what you wish for kind of thing but also it's like you know you the Republicans you know you're talking about half of my family when you're talking about Trump supporters okay it's um, you know it, it, it's again complicated, but but these people. When I saw Bernie Sanders after the 2016 election, I think Chris Hayes was getting a little jealous of Rachel Maddow's numbers or something. <laughs> I don't know, but he was he was forming this town hall with in Kenosha with a bunch of Trump supporters. Now I knew that area because I was going door to door for Bernie in Kenosha. Um, because it's, you know, it's about a 90-minute drive from, from my place. And unbelievable how Bernie Sanders handles those people. There were some hostile people in the audience, but Bernie Sanders didn't flinch. He was not, he literally was not, you know, uh, affected or intimidated or angry at these people. He listened to them. He wasn't calling them basketball of deplorables. His first mm. type of, you know, statements was, I understand you are angry. And, you know, we have a right to be angry. You're all working harder. You're not getting health care. And really, he had won over that room. And I said, you know, it's and then I realized that, of course, the media is trying there. It is like this is like, you know, network, the movie network, you know, this week with the terrorists or something. It was yeah. like, you know, they're trying to get eyeballs onto the TV sets and they have to keep stoking the hate. And, and by the way, I even texted that at the uh, national convention. I was kind of being funny, but you know, 
when we were there in the afternoon, suddenly the big screen would come on and there would be this, you know, showing Trump in a really ridiculous, awful way. And everybody's hissing and booing. And I'm going, oh, time for the two minute hate, you know, like 1984. And, you know, it's like, it's gotten a little more serious. And, um, you know, we have to solve these problems. I don't know what people like Jim Clyburn are thinking when they want to like postpone the the uh, Senate trial for impeachment into 100 days. I'm going, <laughs> I mean, because yeah. literally, seriously, the Democrats only have 100 days. You have, we have to be doing something dramatic that will immediately affect people because this disease is still raging. Yeah. And even when we get the disease under control, the economic fallout is going to be devastating. I think um, just to bounce off something you were just talking about, you know, when you look at um, hate Inc. And, and the kind of polarization and people being in bubbles, I think, you know, you said your involvement in, in the Parks Board um, was an antidote to the toxicity of national politics. I think that's also that kind of community involvement is also potentially an anecdote to this polarization and the oh, insularity and, and the kind know, of, yeah. I'm telling people to do this because if you get involved with a park board, for instance, or, or if you want some, if you want some tension in your life, you can get involved with the school board in some areas. But, you know, um, what we're dealing with right now, my next project is bike path conductivity, and we want to put another proposal into the federal government for more money for the Monarch Butterfly Corridor uh, project. When well, if you really want to get into it, there are many state and federal and even international projects you can start getting involved in. I mean, you can start you know, pushing your people to uh, make proposals for. And then you realize just the multifacetedness of government on all levels. And I said, you know, after this, I feel like 100% completely qualified to run for US Senate after this, because I see budgets every year. I know the politics of this. I'm not, we're not a legislative body, but we do set policy and we work with state legislators and like the, the city aldermen. We, uh, the park district uh, encompasses like about four counties. It overlaps into four counties, four, three major cities, several townships and towns and unincorporated areas. I mean, you get to understand how government works I'm a little, you know, and I think part of the problem or maybe some of the deficit of some of the squad that went in directly from activism to something like a you know, very high profile legislative seat is that until you've had experience just with budgets and so this can be overwhelming. Now, I think Ocasio-Cortez has been a fantastic person on policy. I think they, you know, they need to learn a little bit about how to leverage power. You know, in principle, I have no power, yet I've gotten what I wanted. <laughs> it's like you, you don't, you know, you, you don't accept the, the status quo or the common wisdom or what has been done before. You have your vision. And I think these people haven't quite grasped that you become the political reality. I mean, no, you become the political reality. I mean, hell, the Tea Party did. They made life incredibly miserable for old Boner or Boehner. <laughs> you had to leave. You know, it's like you, you know, you have to, and, and starting at a low level like this, which is not high profile, although I've gotten hate mail 
I've gotten the head of the school district, you know, just lying about me publicly, except every, fortunately everybody was on to her. But nonetheless, uh, people wonder how I can do this, you know, and I said, well, I know, you know, you know, you begin to realize what this is all about. And this is people's little fiefdoms, people's little, you know, pe people want to be feel that they have power or they have some validity in their own spheres. And you don't have to be sucking up. You can actually honestly acknowledge the work that people do. Even people that you kind of despise, just get a little humble, see what they've done and understand it. And then, you know, you can be like Bernie Sanders. You can, and I don't think it's any different at the local level, the state level or the federal level. I think it is always the same. So, hey, you know, go for a job. You'll have training where you don't have to spend like a million dollars to get your seat. <laughs> you can like, you know, start out. I only spent a few hundred dollars on my campaign last time. And um, so, you know, I, I've, I've uh, put my name on the ballot this time. I'm pretty sure I'm gonna be reelected. I've been certainly known in this district. Um, and that's, I mean, I see a whole bunch of tasks that we can do in, in, in the park district going forward. I can help. I mean, I've, I've been in my, uh, my representative's office. I mean, US representative, I've been in the mayor's office. I, you know, I, I have no problem walking into anybody's office and saying, you know, I need to have an appointment here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I almost want to, I mean, it's definitely counter to my own interest as a proprietor of this podcast. Like I, ideally, probably I would have everyone just at home alone listening to the podcast 24 seven, but I almost feel as though we need to have like, it's cheesy, but you know, there's like meatless Monday and whatnot. I feel like there needs to be like one or two days a week where everyone just needs to get the fuck off offline. Yes. Close Facebook, close Twitter. And just if you're, do you spend that time engaged in your community and, you know, maybe if you need to use social media in that sphere, fine. Mm -hmm. But um because otherwise, uh, the insularity is just going to become more and more entrenched. And you know, it it it, it is, and it's just um, well, I am the far left, you know, but I am really just kind of scratching my head over people who I, you know, had previously kind of regarded rather highly, and I don't think they realize when they're having these little social media wars on each other that to people who don't know you guys personally, it sounds like high school. You know, it sounds like, oh, nobody likes him. <laughs> this is like, it, it, to people who don't know you guys and we don't live there, that's what it sounds like. And it affects nobody in my neighborhood. You know, nobody's being helped, you know, by these, these kind of, Twitter wars or Facebook wars or social media, you know, kerfuffles. Yeah, it's a it's a moment, momentary and shallow catharsis, I think, in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to see I want to see people be yeah. able to disagree on strategy more productively in the future. I'm really well, concerned to see well, like you have to evolve. learn how to you really have to learn how to be kind and appreciate people who really do not have your views. And I'll give you one little incident of uh, the park district where it really paid off. So, you know, I don't, I, I've learned where, where it's not solving, it's not about the problem at hand. I don't impose my views. I mean, I don't pose my politics on other people in the park district. A lot of people are Republican. There's all flavors of Democrats too, but, but um, you know, pretty much everybody knew I was a Bernie bro, but I never did it. Well, we had a little uh, near disaster at the park district. The park district had been self 
had had been self-insured uh, for we had our own uh, health care insurance for you know the the uh, the workers the retirees the members of the uh, uh, of the retirees or the uh, employees well one uh, adult child of a retiree was about to face millions of dollars in in, in uh, medical fees because he was severely disabled. Things were coming to a crisis. The, um, I think we used to call it reinsurers, but you know, stop loss was, uh, I guess the term you use, it was one of our companies that uh, were, were backing up our self-insured pool. They decided that, well, yeah, we can go ahead and cover his costs, but uh, we're gonna up your premiums by $5 million. And everybody went, what? Even the park district, that's a, a park district as big as ours. That was a ton of money that was going to break the park district. So we had a, a few tense months and I sat down and I, I was able to help the lawyers because I had navigated through Obamacare and the solution that we had gotten was that we got him on the Obamacare exchanges and the park district would pick up his premiums. Okay, so after all of this was done, our, uh, our executive director who is a, Old, his whole family is longtime Republicans, friends with former Bruce Rauner, you know, Governor Bruce Rauner and all that goes, you know, Commissioner, I'd like to buy you a beer or two and talk about single payer health care. And I said, delighted anytime, <laughs> you know, but the thing is, is that I was able to work with everybody, you know, I, I was, we, we were literally, we had to work this through because this was, a, you know, we kind of laugh about it now, but this was really a, a big problem for the park district. And, uh, and because, you know, I hadn't been confrontational and had tried to be cooperative with these guys at all times, people trust me now. And uh, they have no trouble talking to me about things. And you develop a kind of trust when, it, I think good faith when people see that you're actually trying to solve problems, you know, mutual problems, and you're actually trying to do the best thing for everybody. Um, so that more than any, you know, more than any, any kind of traditional political work, though I don't discount that, but, you know, uh, protests and things like that, just my working with the park district people and then seeing, you know, now, it, what was that line out of Monty Python? Uh, now we see the violence inherent in the system. <laughs> People, <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, one by one, and that's the problem with insurance in particular, is that it's fine until it isn't. You know, insurance, I, I, I told Ben Burgess once, I know insurance was kind of like, you know, it's kind of like marriage. You know, it's a contract that you get into, but you really don't know the terms of it until you try to get out of it. And, and, and then in, in the case of insurance, you don't really know the terms until you really need it. Right. And then you begin to understand the terms and sometimes in very stark, you know, like awful ways. So yeah, I, but I'm saying that, you know, it's a good humbling experience. When, when you just look at people and you stop, when you put your animosity aside, and if you ever listen to the David Feldman show, you know how, you know, hardcore I can be on principles, but you know, you put that aside and you just work with people as people. It is amazing you know, what you can do. And if you want to run for higher office, that's fine. As I said, I feel as, I, I feel as qualified as anyone else I see to run for U.S. Senate, if, you know, I could ever possibly do that. 
because you know I don't I see the skill set at the very local level being exactly what it is at the federal level. So yeah, that's a very inspired and inspiring thought. I think you know anyone who's listening uh, now or in the future who can kind of take that those words and and maybe seek some of the same experience. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, what I would be I would be extremely proud if if that happened just based on this conversation. But I mean, I think people need to have these conversations. People need to hear these kinds of things to get over some of the oh, kind yeah. of baseline cynicism and the, and the indoctrination and the learned helplessness of, of it all kind of thing, you know? Mm. Um, so we'll start the wind down procedure here. I think uh, we could probably talk a, a lot longer. So I'll have to try and goad you in to coming back sometime. By the way, I might I might make part of this a premium episode. Is that is that okay with you? I'll edit that out, of course. If it's you know, not, I, I, yeah, I get that. I, I get the guy yeah. back concept. No, it's fine. Um, probably will end up releasing the full thing like later down the line. But I've realized I've done like I don't know. This is episode technically episode like fourteen, and at some point <laughs> I should make something premium if I ever want to get some some kind of patrons. I think right now I, I literally have. I've like put stuff up on Patreon that like literally no one in the world has listened to. So, <laughs> well, you know, that, that's that is a, a problem. Um, you know, that's and and I, I don't know what advice to give. There are so many good you know podcasters and things like that. However, um, we need a different model. We need, and we I'm need hoping to, I'm hoping to find some kind of more like yeah. like a little more centered on like a worker cooperative or something where like you could be in a union, the listener and the creator, and like you get cross pollination with other groups and whatnot like I don't think the model like especially if you're doing kind of like a left-wing kind of in spirit polit uh, podcast or like I call myself a Bolshevik most of the time like I'd like to you know not have to try and put like some shitty ad on this on the top to try and make like some crappy like 12 cents like it's not that's not, not a tenable not a well, tenable. Even, I think we've gotten used to it on YouTube now I mean I remember the first ads on YouTube it would kind of remind me of the first ad that showed up in a movie theater and everyone booed and yelled oh, that was the worst popcorn at the screen and it's like you had to get the manager down there and then everybody booed him he's like we won't run any more commercials the movie's coming up you okay yeah Good. Imagine, imagine if you walked into. I heard it described a really funny way, which is imagine if you if you walked into a store, but every time before you could walk in, they forced you to sit through a twenty minute video. You know, it's like it's just bizarre. God, people would do the Elvis, pull out their guns and shoot it. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, so great to talk to you, Marianne. I wanted to be sure that we told people where they could follow you. I know you're on Twitter. Your handle yeah, Twitter is Razor Girl, Marianne Cummings uh, uh, at, on Facebook. Um, I've got an old website that I say I'm, you know, I should be renewing any day now. It's MarianneCummings.com. It's my old website for the for my old run of the Park District, which is going to be revamped pretty soon, and other stuff that I have up there. You could just I mean, see like my house being, you know, kind of gutted and and you know, remodeled. I've, I love where I live. It's the uh, poor part of town, but what's nice about the poor part of town in a, a cool enough city like Aurora is that you can get a Victorian mansion for less than like a two bedroom condo upriver. <laughs> like I've got this, and Not you know, bad. I tell my people move here because yeah, it's work to redo these things, but these houses are so flipping well built that you just, you know, get them in any kind of working order. They, they're actually fairly low maintenance houses, you know, from there on out. And you, you no one's going to build houses like this anymore. And there's like a ton of them all over Aurora, you know, and they don't have to have a 3,000 square foot mansion. There are bungalows that are to die for just a, a few blocks over. 
that are just fantastic, you know, but I mean, with the growth of uh, remote work and whatnot, it's probably well, something that people should be thinking I, about. Probably. I want to say before we leave, um, one of our crew uh, around here, fellow uh, Bernie Sanders delegate, John Lash, he ran against Denny Hastert, made national news when he ran against Denny Hastert in 2006. And it was like, uh, it was such a stunning show against Denny Hastert, then Speaker of the House, that the uh, Democratic, uh, that the Democratic Party of Illinois decided to reward John with picking a friend of mine who was a self-funding millionaire to back, you know, who John almost beat anyway in 2008. Now he's running for mayor of Aurora and he's running on a model that's a little different. He's running on, you know, bringing green technologies into the area, having a jobs program and a, a, and a platform in the city that every house gets revamped, that gets retrofitted for, you know, green technology for mm, energy, energy efficiency, right. And these jobs can't be outsourced. You get it. And the, the instant you would see this with federal or state money, because there are programs for it, that's when these small companies come in and said, oh, okay, we can do this. And uh, anyway, it's- Would people it's, be shocked at the amount of power a, a mayor actually has? Uh, the mayor, yeah, we've been kind of sometimes horrified at the amount of power mayor has. Uh, <laughs> that, that too, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'd say that uh, John's actually, John's name is John Lash. I will probably have him on my website too. But uh, the thing is, is that he probably wouldn't have run or I wouldn't have advised him to run if it hadn't been for COVID and the Black Lives Matter. We've had a pretty good police department or so we thought it was on the national, it got really good national press when we had this shooting this um, over at, uh, the, at the factory, just five blocks from where I live, just right across the river. Uh, made national news. We had a, we were all on lockdown here because you know, you had, they, he was on the loose and they, the police department behaved exceptionally well. But that kind of hid the fact that there was real problems, even in this multiracial, it's about a third white, third Hispanic, third African-American and the police force world, it was always fairly exemplarily until we heard some of our uh, African-American brothers and sisters tell their stories. I'm going, what? What? Mm. Then the day after the, uh, uh, BLM protests, we had looters coming in there and that was kind of, you know, that was problematic and that's been problematic for BLM. But um, the next day, our mayor is sending like 10 armored Humvees, they were military grade vehicles, down Broadway, downtown Aurora. <laughs> I immediately shoot up uh, uh, email to our mayor going, what the F, Richard, what are those for? A no-knock warrant on Marianne's house? I mean, God <laughs> damn it, this is horrible. And then you realize, you know, literally, what are you going to do with these? And then you, you, know, you look at these things, they were probably surplus, but I know that there's probably $50,000 a year maintenance on each one of those. Sure. Like and it's like, and this is the problem. We've even seen this. So um, yeah, and, and we've been the downtown. It's it's fantastic. I just walk downtown. It's a river. It's beautiful. But all these businesses that got million dollar tax rebates to come here, you know, uh, most of them aren't going to be here next year. I don't think they're going to survive COVID. And yet we're still left with the neighborhoods being neglected. Mm. I think John is not averse to developing the downtown. But you know, if you have 
neighborhoods, people with jobs and neighborhoods that look desirable, you'll have people with money and people with money to spend will spend it. <laughs> you know, yeah. they'll help local business. It's a much different model. And I think importantly, you know, Green New Deal is something we need to do, but no one really knows what that looks like on the local level. And John right. wants to run on a platform where we're going to show you what a Green New Deal can look like at the, at the local level, how, how it could completely transform the aesthetics, you know, the social equity, the, uh, the cost of living, people's economic situation, everything in a community. And I really think people are ready to hear that. Yeah, I'll be really, really interested to hear more about that. That sounds really interesting. Um, honestly, that could be pretty cutting edge too, because mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's been articulated on the local level much from what I've heard. I mean, I'm sure it has been, but um, definitely something. You've I done a little bit of it. I would love to have a mayor like that because, you know, I've been pushing, well, actually my, my uh, colleague was, has been, was pushing more than I have. We, there was multiple things we wanted done, but she was pushing for green technology to get rid of all the Monsanto products. We've got like 186 properties. We've pushed, we've successfully pushed a program where there's gonna be pollinator gardens at every single one of these properties. Actually, not at a very expensive thing to do. And uh, one of the things I'm pushing for is dark skies. I said, you know, it's been, it's been implemented in, uh, in other cities and other areas all over the world. Uh, that means that you reduce the light pollution of the nighttime sky with these directed light. Right now, street lights just send their, their light, you know, a, a full ball around the light, a four pi solid right. angle in, geomet in geometric terms. Omnidirectional, direct, yeah. You could direct that light and I, and I saw I'm, I'm going down the road and I see the, I, re, I realize one stretch of road is like, I see the road, but I don't see the streetlights. So where are the streetlights? And then it's only when you get close to going under them that you actually see the lights. So we're pushing things like that. We're pushing things like bird architecture, you know, which is a big thing now. We just got an Eagle Scout award in the park district last night online. Uh, it was a big project doing uh, bird habitats you know, from platforms to, you know, swamp birds to, uh, you know, a whole, we, we heard warblers. I'd never heard warblers around here. We had a flock of warblers for about a week come through Aurora. And that is, this, there's so many fascinating things here. Wow. I got to hear like, about all, more of, all of this. Yeah. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is that, again, it's like, when you see things like that, you you just just get your head out of the toxicity of either Fox or you know MSNBC and the Twitters and the Facebook and just you know like talk to your neighbors. It's not like you ignore any of that because you really can't. But doing things on the local level gives you our gives you armor, gives you ammunition to then take it to the federal level. So. Wise words, very wise words. So great, so great talking to you. I really appreciate yeah. um, you taking the time, and I think we—it's pretty clear that I'm, I'm definitely going to have to have you on again really soon to, uh, oh, to delve into more of this stuff. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Marianne, and uh, and you. to all your listeners out there, please follow us uh, on Twitter at PodRule, and uh, yes, yeah, take a step outside and uh, get involved <laughs> in your community. You might be uh, you might be shocked at what you will find. So uh, so we'll leave you with that. Okay, well, uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your night, and I'll be uh, following your work closely, and, and we'll talk real soon. Okay, all right, yeah, right. I, I'm looking forward to it, thanks.
Kokar Bhai.